the issue of tr- like trying to be in the arts with the intention of making money is a very difficult road to choose. It's such a troublesome road, yeah. Because the last two years, I've been really going over this in my head because financially, I'm not in a place where I'm like, that my family believes that this was the right choice for me. (laughs) You know, I get like, you know, those questions at the dinner table. And I'm not saying that they don't believe in me. They, They do believe in me. But still, I'm like, you know, not completely living off it. But the lucky thing is probably because I'm I'm only living for myself, you know. I'm not I don't have kids. I I do not have to support the family. I only have to support my own ass. So so I can kind of like, you know, brush that kind of feeling off. But still I'm I was wondering, you know, my dream is to have the studio, you know, the the the, the fantastic studio. First floor, big doors. And you can just have space around your head. You can have your tools there, you know. But in order to have that, you need to be really getting some money in, you know. You you need to be able to rent that studio or own that studio. So, yeah. I've been, actually, it's funny that you contacted me and asked me to be, you know, come on this podcast because I've been really like kind of figuring out what am I doing wrong and what am I doing right. That is literally the question we're trying to answer with this mm. podcast, mm. correct? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are things that we all do that are are good, right, help us with our success, whatever. But we, I feel like a lot of us sort of self-sabotage a lot. Mm. Like, you know, like, like I could, if I went to whatever art fair or biennial or whatever, I could meet the right people that could get me the right place. I could get a certain uh, residency or mm-hmm. work harder on a grant to try and get these things. We create the connections that would help me sort of enhance my career, mm. but, but I'm not going to. No, exactly. It's just, it's like you're trying to fit some kind of a glove that doesn't fit, you know, it's like, yeah. I'd rather spend more time and, and all that money in making more art. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's where I'm saying we're like, we're self-sabotaging because like we know what we could do or Mm -hmm. should do. Mm -hmm. It would make success. Mm -hmm. But because, but they also, but part of it I think is because a lot of those things are sort of hope and a prayer. Like Mm -hmm. you, you apply for a residency or a grant Mm -hmm. hoping that you get chosen. And if you don't, then you're sort of emotionally crushed for a little while, you know, and you, you hope for an exhibition and then you get the exhibition and then nobody fucking cares about it. And then you're kind of crushed for a little while. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's just constantly like we have to be self-confident in a way. And, can just continue on yeah, exactly. because there's yeah. so much negativity. There's so many no's. There's so many, so many things that we work for so many hours and mm-hmm. so many days and months on that end up failing. Mm-hmm. Like if I added up all the time I've, it, that I put into writing grants, writing proposals, writing oh, applications. Yeah. yeah. And if I could get all that back and just make better artwork, I probably would be, you know, in a different. That's so. I mean, th- that's so right. Yeah, <laughs> I've I've actually come to a point where I'm like, you know, I'm just gonna put a cork in it. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna ease down now. I'm gonna concentrate on my work, put more time into that, and just ease on this, because it was starting to become like that. I wouldn't create. I wouldn't go into that kind of headspace unless there was a carrot or there was I was going to that kind of a residency or I was going to exhibit in that show or something like that you know I just want to sit back and create now and then you know see what happens from that Oh yeah, I was looking through your Instagram page uh, not yours but I think one of the the static places stuff mm-hmm. Stadir, yes, yes, Stadir places, yeah. And I was just looking through it, and I'm just like, those are people that just make. Mm -hmm. Like, they're not worried about, am I making a living from it? Am I going to be in museums? Am I going to be in the canon of art history? They're Mm -hmm. just producing lovely things. Exactly, yeah. I'm I'm really happy about that project. Actually, me and uh, and Thorgerður Olafsdóttir created that together 
from our adventures in the in the, in around Iceland. I I've gone there like since 2008. I was like strongly focused on that. I was actually from that place. Like my family was from there, but then I found out that that was just a lie. <laughs> Wait, yeah. wait. I, I've got a lot of lies in my family. Hold on. That's a big one. You thought you were from a certain country and you're not? No, 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 no. Sorry. Just a certain part of Iceland. I mean, because, okay. I mean, we're all quite related. Yes. You can, you can be related to the 10th or the 10th or the 9th, depending on how, how close you're related, you know, it becomes dangerous. But for some reason, a story that my mother told me something from her childhood I, I started thinking, oh, okay, so my actually my grandfather was from here. Or so I was like started to think that and I was telling everyone there. And then they were trying, oh, is it this one? Or is it are you related into this family? And I was like, Well, no, no, I need to check it more out, actually. And I went on to this page that's Islutinga book. So it's the book of Icelanders, put in my name, and then I was like, Oh no, that was actually in a different place. <laughs> So that that's, you know, I was just like, I'm supposed to be from here. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of your childhood, one of the questions I always love asking everybody is sort of how did you get creative? So were, were your parents creative? Did you have some great schooling? Like what was the thing in your childhood that even brought you to being an artist? Yeah, well, the I think, uh, I, I, yeah, I keep wondering about that question because... I think I just had a lot of freedom as a kid, you know. My mother and father really supported me in whatever I wanted to do. I mean, hence that what I started this podcast on that, you know, that you know, I have to somehow always feel like I'm defending myself that this was the right choice. But they were they're really supportive, you know, because, you know, I'm only thinking about my own ass here. I'm not dragging a whole family down <laughs> with Yet. me. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, so I think it's the freedom I had. My mother always encouraged me to be creative. I asked her this question the other day, actually. I was like, what was it that you, in my nature, or like as a kid, that kind of led or you saw that would lead me down the, the artistic path? And she said, actually, you, you were drawing a lot as a kid and you would draw these really weird figures. And for my age at that time, like five, six years old, you know, she was like, where is she getting those images from? And so from that, I think then she, you know, that they would associate me with the, with the visual arts and say, you're very creative, you know, that could be a path. And I was like, oh, yeah, that could be a path I could take. But I've never actually, I didn't define it because at some point I was like, I could also go into acting. I really loved acting as well in theaters. and. So I was like, I didn't actually make a choice, a defined choice, until I applied for the Art Academy of Iceland. <laughs> so you had the choice of two of the least consistent professions <laughs> in the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay, so you chose the better, the lesser of two evils. Yeah, exactly. I mean, also coming from a, from a place where the choice is yours, you know, that's quite important that I could actually be like, yeah, I want to, you know, study art. Yeah, I want to st study theater. You know, not everyone has that choice. No, no. no, they certainly do not. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it was just because, yeah, I had the freedom to choose and I, I, you know, I love being creative, so it kind of just became, you know. I do know. That's... I have no responsibility of this nature. Oh no! It's well, I like blaming parents for these things. That's where <laughs> these questions come from. Because my parents, I can totally blame my parents. So. Oh, oh. Totally their fault. Ah, uh, really? I'm, no, not at all. Oh, drugs is probably what got me into it, really. But you know, but I, I've quit. I've quit. Oh. I've been clean for. 21 years now but oh, you know at the time yeah you know, mixed bag on that life's a little boring sometimes now yeah that's that's why i've always been scared of using drugs actually because i i, I don't want to know how great they are yeah yeah you really don't no i would be like no i'm not going there I, no i'm too scared that i just yeah okay probably better for you it's fine mm. i do not encourage it no <laughs> But I had a good time when I did it. That's it. Yeah. 
So you have a background that you have a long list of things that you've done in your life. So give me like a little overview of some of the things you're, let's say, more proud of. And what I'm talking about specifically are not just artistic works, but more some of the, you have a gallery in Greece? Uh, yeah, in Athens, yeah. yeah. And those kinds of projects. Yeah. Yeah, you could say that my, you know, being an artist encapsulates all of these different kind of projects that I've done. Maybe one half or the other half of my practice is actually creating projects, collaborations with other artists or artist-run galleries, exhibition spaces in order to create exhibitions and other projects from that. For example, this Stadir Places is a project that's in the west of Iceland that me and Thorkell Rólofsdóttir created where we actually, we travel around the southern part of the west of Iceland and we let the places speak to us in order to invite an artist to come and create work from a specific point of place. Stop, wait, one quick question. You yeah. say you invite an artist. Yeah. An artist from anywhere in the world or yeah. an Icelandic artist? Now it's been, you know, Icelandic artists, but it's totally open for anyone from the world. I mean, it's not that old. We started the project 2013. That one is a is a great opportunity, as we were speaking about earlier, just to, you know, be with the work and with your thoughts and kind of create because I mean that's it's not like that you're in a place where everyone is going to see what you create it's more about you know spending time creating work and also connecting with the people that live there the locals if it's an outdoor piece or something that happens just momentarily so every other year this happens with uh, now it's going to be three artists that open the exhibition in June 18th of June and it's it's real fun as well like there's lo there's lots of people that come from Reykjavik there's the locals over there that come and you know we spend time together and we go between the works that they've created and we speak about art life in general and then we just have a really good blast together I mean, I'm re I love this, love this project for this in nature as well, in one of the most beautiful parts of Iceland. From what I understand, Iceland is beautiful everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true, actually. Yeah. But I love the fact that like there are all these biennales all over the world. So instead of like participating or engaging with those, you're like, fuck it, I'll make my own biennale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were. We also wanted to like take the the focus of the the city Reykjavik, you know that that being the only you know only place that anything contemporary visual art happens, you know. So we we wanted to you know pull it into the countryside and pull it to this specific place because you know I'm I'm from there, so <laughs> that's what I've heard. Yeah, I'm just waiting to know which one of the houses are mine, but you know. But that's a, that's another. Is that story. how it works there? Do you like inherit houses and stuff? Is well, it, it does, but it's not. Uh, no, no, it's not within my family. No, no, I'm oh, okay. I'm still waiting for it though. But um, okay. But at the other, if anybody listening, is anybody listening and yeah. happens to have a real estate up there that they do not know what to do with? I'm totally. I have loads of ideas. <laughs> I mean, that's also one point of, of places uh, started is that we were always looking for a specific venue for it but that's also hard with housing in Iceland you know we're building houses more houses there's always a need for more and the rent is expensive and the market is expensive that actually leads me to the other project a dash because in 2015 I did a residency in Athens called Snekta which is Athens backwards which actually a friend of mine that I studied with back in Edinburgh because I did my master's in sculpture in Edinburgh, Scotland. Oh man, Scotland. <laughs> you just love it. So I studied with Augustus Venuglu who opened this residency in Athens and I applied for it and I went there and I did a January, February two month residency with a girl called Noemi Niederhauser. She's an artist from Switzerland. And we really bonded and became really good friends. I think we were actually going through similar things in life in general at the same time. It was, you know, it's just that gut feeling. And 
we were just committed to come back to Athens because we were like, this is the place we want to be. This is the place we want to have our studio space. We would love to find something that could be part studio, part exhibition space. And we just had this really focused will to do that. But that's also due to the fact that there's loads of space there and it's also cheap. It's possible. So the possibility was there. So it kind of all fit. And we met Katrina Gallagher. She's a visual artist. She did also the Snekta Residency. And so we met also with Greek artist Zoe Hadzianaiki. And at the opening, at Snekta actually, one night. And we were just like kind of talking about this idea. And then Zoe just said, oh, I have this house. Because they're actually in Greece. There you inherit. You know, they really buy real estate there as a... As a what do you call it? Like um, It's a family estate kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, I mean, but also to have your money in something as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and property in those parts of the world stay in families for generations exactly. and more generations. Yeah, yeah. So she said, actually, we have this real estate in Exachia, which is the neighborhood in Athens. And I mean, girls, just be warned, though. It's in like horrible conditions. And we were like excited by that. <laughs> we had been looking at spaces around. There's a lot of shop spaces, you know, first floor with big glass windows. And we were like, yeah, let's keep this keep this hunt a little bit longer. And then we went there and saw this. This is like a neoclassical house, two floors, old wood uh, roofing tiled, you know, really beautiful house. But it was, that was true, actually. It was in terrible state. And we were like, this is it. We got it, you know. And with Katrina and Zoe on board, we formed a dash. We crowdfunded it through We Make It, which is a Swiss crowdfunding apparatus. And and we just started working on it with our hands, you know. We just got in the got in the dirt. We started, you know, fixing it up. But to a certain point where it was just, like, functional, but you could do loads more. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was rough, but functional. Well, that's something I've run into a lot with property owners is they think that if somebody's going to rent it, that they should renovate it, make it rentable and all mm. this. And, and I keep telling these property owners, I'm like, no, no, no. Artists don't want the polished, refi refined, whatever, yeah. because yeah. the price will then be too high. Mm -hmm. And we also want the opportunity to be a little creative in there, mm -hmm. do some interesting stuff. And we're not going to do it if it's already been renovated. So we want the unrenovated places. We want water, electricity, mm -hmm. air, maybe an internet. And that's it. Yeah. Like beyond that, like leave it as is and artists will enjoy it. Now they won't earn necessarily a lot of money from us because we're no. going to pay low rent, yeah. but they will have a reliable renter who will enjoy it. Exactly. And generally, what, yeah. and generally what will happen is an artist will come in there and they'll do something in it. And then because they're there, the neighborhood will become more attractive. So then therefore rent in the neighborhood will go up because of gentrification, because the arts comes into a neighborhood. Exactly. And then, and then artists will be outpriced and they won't be able to stay there. Yeah. I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm seeing it happening in Athens. So I've been there since 2015, and but that, then the, the financial climate was, you know, really not good. And then it's been going slightly up since then, and a lot of foreigners been coming been coming there to buy real estate because it's been really low. And then around that starts some kind of a creative hub or artistic groups and then there's a cafe that opens the bar that opens and suddenly it's the most coolest bar that that's there and then suddenly other you know people that were like no I'm never moving to that neighborhood are suddenly moving to that neighborhood and you're like yeah it's a very sad state of affairs because in the end we as artists then get pushed out of that neighborhood mm. because the rents go up yeah Okay, I actually, I have a question for you. Because you're in Iceland, I've never been to Iceland, so I'm mm -hmm. fascinated by it because it's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And I'm a photographer, so of course I love you know, beautiful landscapes. Mm -hmm. But if if it's so expensive and it's so difficult, and I mean, I would imagine it's even like food and general things, like everything has to be shipped in and all this kind of stuff. The life of living there is very mm -hmm. expensive. I can't imagine it's easy. It's very cold. The the winters are long. All these kinds of things. Mm. Why choose to stay there? 
Mm. Well, I'm actually more in Athens than I'm than I'm in Iceland. I just happened to be here because of COVID. So I've been here for the, since no, well, October, end of October, I think. Yeah. But why choose to stay here? There, I mean, yeah, there is. I mean, as you say, I mean, Iceland is a really good country. We have we have good salaries. We have good jobs. We have good social system. We have you know, there's like there is help here. There's a good support system for artists as well. There's there there are there are funds that you can apply for, culture funds for your projects. There's also the artist salary, as well. Which I'm sorry. What? Is, yes, what? exactly. Well, this is actually a good thing that I'm on this podcast and I do. There's something that's the artist salary. I think it's called the Scandinavian model or something. It's also in Sweden and also in Norway. It's funds that the government actually pays out monthly that you can apply for with your projects. And then, yeah, you get like an artist salary from the government. I love that. Mm -hmm. I believe I've actually spoken to another guest from Iceland who mm. told me a little bit about this. Mm. But I, I just, that wh why has this not caught on with the rest of the world? Exactly. I, I ask the same question. I ask it because, I mean, it, yeah. It's not not even just the salary thing, but like just artist fees. Even mm. like it's one of those things I've I've been talking a lot about is in Europe. There's this ongoing conversation about generally like creating artist fee, standardized mm. artist fees, so that when you're putting on an exhibition at an institution or whatever, mm. that at least your, your time of doing that is paid for, which generally it's not. So like that's a that's a that's a rub that i've had for decades that i didn't even realize was something that other people were sort of bringing up and so i'm quite excited to know that there's at least a conversation going on about that yeah well it's actually been pulled through here the association of icelandic artists pulled it through now that it's a law that there's a there's a minimum fee that an artist gets for exhibiting because i mean it needs to start with the government you can't blame the museums for not paying the artists it needs to come from a deeper source it needs to come from you know the state needs to be able to put the money there i think that's based on your your i mean i'm american so to mm. me you know, is the government making that decision is not the way we start things mm. <laughs> not in america no but yeah in europe i it absolutely i mean basically like nothing's going to change unless they're forced to change it yeah yeah, but that's how it, it was forced here. You know, it was it went you know public, and it was a uh, yeah. I love it. I'm all for it. Yeah, it's great. Mm. All right. Something else you brought up was that you do a lot of collaborative collaborative projects and a lot of collaborative works and mm -hmm. things like this. What brought you to that? Like, because like you know, the romantic idea of being an artist is like the solo practitioner in their studio smoking mm -hmm. cigarettes, totally. And and being alone and yeah. all this kind of I stuff. I wish so, I was that artist. <laughs> you know, I I, I wish. <laughs> that's the that's the point. Is that's sort of the romantic idea yeah, of yeah. being an artist. Yeah. But you choose to do a lot of work collaboratively, yeah. and I think that that takes a certain kind of personality. Mm. Uh, so, like, what drew you to doing collaborative work versus, you know, being a hermit? Yeah, well, I think, uh, again, it just, you know, it's it's something that comes natural to me. It's something that I just instigate on a natural kind of, I love being in collaboration with other creative individuals because, I mean, maybe it's a, maybe it gives me a lot doing that. I mean, it drains a lot as well, you know, it's because you, you will have to find funding for it. You will have to find all the resources for it, as you know yourself, of course, as we all know. I mean, but still, it just gives you so much back, you know, that just an opportunity to create, for example, what we did in a dash, you know, that, you know, each of us had like networks of people, creative individuals that we were like, wow, I mean, I could totally, I could see that person coming. I could see that person coming. We could do an open call. We can open it up, you know. It's just there was this need for it to do that. And there's this need within myself to do that. It's something that I just can't handle. My friends have told me, like, Eva, I think you need to just, you know, stop doing all those projects and just concentrate on your own work but I think it fuels each other for me I think the collaborative projects just fuel my individual practice and I can't really put the things in two different categories well for me uh, mine is teaching I feel yeah. like teaching 
helps my art. I take off the hat for all teachers and I bow down to their feet because, I mean, being my friend is a teacher. I know a couple of teachers. I, I just find that this is the this is the job that should be paid the most. And <laughs> well, doctors and teachers, huh? That's not something that's come natural to me because I, it just really stresses me out. I think I'm just too codependent. <laughs> I know people that co-teach. So like two people get up and teach together yeah. so to alleviate some of that stress. Yeah. I, I don't like that. I'm a bit too much of a control freak. I, I like sort of. Yeah. Well, like I love sort of having the ability to mold and direct and sort of, and, and sort of my father's a priest. So, mm. so I actually like the idea of almost getting up and sort of doing an artistic sermon kind mm. of thing. Like, oh, la, wow. la, la, you know? Oh yeah. It's really lovely. I, I even have like little ties that I wrap my lectures together and like a flourish and everything. It's great oh, fun. Oh, wow. I would, I would love, I really, I, yeah. Now I need to see your lecture. I would love to see your lecture. I will never let anybody record my lectures. Are you kidding? <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> Probably all kinds of wrong facts and all this kind of stuff, but it doesn't matter because it's trying to teach a, a, an idea. Mm. So like, facts aren't important in that case. Mm, mm. Approach the idea from multiple angles. Yeah, exactly. Be open. Yeah. 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 That's also interesting is that all the educational system has gone online as well. So you haven't, you haven't had to videotape or like do it. I mean, you would do it live online, I guess then. Yeah. No. No, I do recorded videos now. Yeah. yeah. But I, I do sort of one-sided critiques. Like mm. Basically, I give my input mm. and they just suck it up. Mm. Yeah. Take it or leave it. Huh? <laughs> yeah. They don't get to defend themselves. No. no. <laughs> it's, it's kind of nice in that way, but also not because the, the, the interaction that happens during a critique session is really mm. magnificent. And same mm. thing with working collaboratively. Like when you sit there with multiple people, like you throw an idea, it fails, but it sparks an idea in somebody else that then leads around the table to something successful. So, I mean, I love that. Like I'm a huge advocate of sort of talking things out mm. yeah yeah talking things out i think i'm half at 50 50 if i'm more like I'm, I'm yeah 50 talk 50 do i mean yeah it's like oh no mine's just talking things out before even getting started ah okay yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, no. <laughs> yeah i'm more i do it and then i'm like actually it's interesting that the the, the podcast name is the wise fool and it just came to me that this this image of the the tarot card yeah the fool card and i love that card actually it's been told many times to me that i'm that card i don't believe i've ever had my tarot read mm. oh it's fun of, of all the crazy things i've done in my life that would be one i have not done you should try to do that you should or you can interview eight tarot reader i've had guests who do tarot cards but ah. they did not do a reading for me ah. so I, sh I should should approach them again yeah yeah all right, shifting gears. Actually, there, there's something I forgot to ask, which is very fundamental that I usually ask in the beginning. Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Yes. My name is Eva Islips Dottir, but I say Eva Islips. I just take the Dottir off. Dopta? Dottir. So it means the daughter of Islivers. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, my wife has the same thing in the Czech Republic. They have Ova at the end. Yeah which actually means property of. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So property yeah. of the family name or the father's name? Father's name. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Yeah. That needs to be reevaluated. Yeah. Just to be clear, she did not put an OVA when we got married. Nope. Her name is the same as mine. Exactly. Yeah. She yeah. is not my property. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> A topic you have a book called mm -hmm. the feminine sublime exactly yeah i'm interested in a the topic of it but b also how and why you got a book published especially in this day and age when well not a lot of books are being published mm -hmm. yeah it's true well it's self-published <laughs> first of all it's self-published and it's made with the help of the culture fund of iceland so that's actually quite important and it's done in a collaboration <laughs> so it's a collaboration that i had with two other artists katrin inka jonsdottir hjördisadottir and rakel mcmahon 
called It's the Media, Not You. We all did the same class together at the Art College of Iceland, the academy. So we're old schoolmates and we all really liked performance art. Though we all did it individually quite different. So, but it kind of, you know, we wanted to make this group in order to investigate performance art more. Also, in what way you can exhibit what is left behind. You know, what, what are the elements that you can somehow, you know, build on when you do performance work. So we've been working together since 2013, if I'm correct. I'm probably not correct. Years are totally crazy for me. But we're not working together anymore. But this book is, you know, a result. The Feminist Sublime is the result of a performance we did in Athens in 2019, where we decided to have a conversation without speaking to each other. So we did, we printed these bubbles, these speech bubbles, and had each a folder of them. And then we had a conversation between the three of us about everything, basically, religion, working together, specific feelings, the environment. So we did this for three days and it just accumulated. So this book is actually that conversation Nobody can see that picture. No, yeah, that's true. Sorry about that. So it's actually this. <laughs> I'm so confused. I'm seeing you, but I'm also, yeah. So it's a, so the book is a, a child of this performance. We also exhibited in LTD Incorporation in Edinburgh, which Kevin Harmon runs. And we had, uh, where we exhibited these bubbles there. And we also had other elements there that you can actually see in the book. With making the book, you know, we started with a discourse on investigating what is a dialogue, what is, you know, is it, could we create some kind of a different dialogue between us? Now we are friends, we're also collaborators, we are female, so we wanted to do this kind of, you know, inner work in a way instead of doing something out in the, the public sphere. It was absolutely something that we did in privacy. And then we asked four girls to write texts about the feminist sublime. So the feminist sublime, I can actually read you the introduction if you want. Sure, feel free. Yeah. The introduction, nude in words. The nude in words, what is more revealing than saying exactly what comes to mind, and even more so by writing it down for everyone to see. Thoughts are stupid, ill-conceived and unsettling are all parts of who we are. We are all idiots. Why are we endlessly trying to be so profane and superior? Why isn't the mud the place to be? If we would all just share more bad ideas and dumb questions, we would be more relaxed. We encountered some problems while arranging the mass of 600 speech bubbles. How do we want to organize them into a book? Do we select our favorite bubbles and highlight them? Should we divide them up thematically to maintain some sort of a narrative or simply embrace chaos or to hell with it, to hell with structure? After some discussion, we found it's most important to stay true to the performance as it was in that action that these 600 speech bubbles have their source. Each speech bubble has a thought bubble inside of it. Why? Because we wanted to merge both. It is a discourse that searches for an alternative view in a dialogue a thought process that can perhaps bolster us by pointing towards our com commonality and faults, my English, huh? but at the same time deflate us just by doing so. This is why we felt we needed to include every written speech bubble as if each one were a crucial link in a chain. The silliness in one sentence might in turn evoke a witty or a poetic response in another. It goes a little bit on. Is it okay, huh? Or should I stop there? I think that's plenty. It's actually, yeah. I was reading along with it on your website. Ah, the text in the book is by Christina Petkopoulou, Eva Runsnorodotir, Mirto Katsimika, and Scarlett Platel. And yeah, we were just, we wanted to create or, or not create or try to create a different kind of dialogue 
Well, the thing that I noticed about the fe- the word the title, the feminist, yeah. feminine sublime, is a pre-existing book. So when I saw that, I was like, "Really, yeah. you were part of that book?" But it's not that same book; it's a different book. Yeah, that's part of Barry Freeman. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So the the question, though, I does the, uh, I guess by choosing that title, are you sort of positioning yourself as a feminist? Yes. Yes. Totally. Help me out. I'm really bad with sort of definitions of things. So what is your definition of feminist or feminism? For me, I am female. That's why I'm a feminist. That's, I mean, that's my definition of a feminist. I think that we should have equal opportunities. I mean, there shouldn't be a difference, I mean, between the sex sexes. And I think, you know, by being a female, I'm a feminist. And that, I mean, I'm not saying that not anyone else can be a feminist. Everyone can be a feminist. But don't get me wrong. I I don't see why there is a a perceived difference in the sexes. Like, I've I've been thinking about this because when I go into, let's say, a gallery and I look at a piece of artwork, I don't go oh, that's done by a male artist, it's worth this amount of money. Mm. Or that's done by a female artist, so it's worth less. That would never enter my mind, mm. ever. Yeah. And so like this whole idea that basically, the, the, especially in the arts, that there's some differentiation between them, and then of course equating to the value of them, I find really quite crazy because it, to me it's the quality of the work. It has nothing to do with somebody's gender. Heck, no. it doesn't even have to do with somebody's age or yeah, any yeah, other yeah. kind of thing like that. Like yeah. none of that has to do with it. It should be value based on quality or merit or any other thing. But exactly. but gender, religion, age, none of these things should be a consideration. Mm. But but they are. Yeah, this is the thing, and that's I mean what when the museums here started going over their collections, they they found out it was such an odd number between male artists and female artists of the works that were in the collection. It was like striking. But why is that? I mean, women have always been making art. Why is it that they were never collected by museums? But I think that's that was part of, you know, the times that the society as well, you know, there was more in the hands of the woman to be home with the children. They weren't, they didn't have the same opportunity, I think, to be probably more visible within the art spectrum. Or, you know, I think they they were just, they had to, not only think of themselves hopefully that's evolving that's definitely evolving i mean totally as i as you asked me like with you know what is my definition of being a feminist like i do not want to go into you know the history of of feminism you know i think we are all feminists well i have this ongoing debate with my wife about this because i i like in a certain point like feminism would mean if the if there's a two bags of groceries and one of them's heavy and one of them's light that theoretically either gender should pick it up. But my Mm. wife is not of that ilk and she believes that a man should pick up the heavy thing, Mm. you know, Mm. and and it's also even goes back to like the, the chivalry ideas of like men should open doors for women and things like this. Mm. And it's like, how far should that go? (laughs) Now, I mean, I've, I've encountered this, especially, well, here, the equal rights between a, a man and, and a woman, we're very much, you know, uh, ahead, I think, in that, you know, with equal pay and that kind of societal. But you also live in a society that, like, if you need, let's say, I, I'm I'm totally working off of my own uh, preconceived ideas of Iceland, so bear with me if I'm being mm. stupid. But like, if you need firewood for the fire, it's not that the man goes out and chops the firewood. It's whoever needs the firewood. So if a woman needs it, she goes out and does it. Exactly. Exactly. And that's not something that's even questioned. No, no. I mean, I'm raised with a mother that did loads of everything. I mean, it's not, she would never refer to anyone else if anything else needed to be done around the house. I mean, I I feel like I'm totally, I, you know, I got, her ability to tackle things from her, you know, just go out and tackle it straight on. I feel like a lot, I feel like people like, so this is not even just a Scandinavian thing, but like people who grow up in 
let's call it like rugged. So it doesn't matter, you know, mountains or, or mm. wherever it is, but like rugged places are more sort of self-sufficient. Mm. Like they, they like were do raised. Do it yourself, yeah. Well, yeah. that if it needs to get done, it yeah. has to get done. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, you're just in, in problems. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't yeah. matter your age. It doesn't matter yeah. your gender, whatever. Yeah. Like, it yeah. just needs to get done. You know, chores, yeah. you know, milking the cows, you know, splitting the firewood, whatever kind of thing. Yeah. Like, it just has to get done. Whereas me, on the other hand, I was raised in the suburbs of a major metropolitan city, and I'm quite lazy little shit. So, <laughs> because everything was close by, huh? not you know. Not, not only that, but I could just go to the store and buy that thing. Yeah. I didn't have to actually do it myself. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I know America. We're, we're a bit. Most of us, the center of America, the rural areas, they're rugged. We're mm. not. I, I was born and raised in Washington D.C., so okay. not so rugged. Okay, I've never been. I've never been. It's okay. I would love just splitting wood, though. I do enjoy doing that. That's fun. That's fun. When, you, when you get it right, you know, it's it's not so, I mean, it's pretty hard. <laughs> well, a, good, a good axe that's sharp yeah. and wood that is nice and dry is great. Mm -hmm. yeah. I've had problems where I do like a dull axe on moist wood, and that mm. is not fun to do. No, that that could that could cause that could cause problem, but it's fun funny actually because we talked about the romantic idea of the artist in his studio smoking a cigar. We also, I mean, I tend to have this romantic idea as well. Like I would just love to go into a cabin and just be there for a couple of months. You know, have my, you know, do my wood and have all my food. And but then again, when you do that, literally, it's hardcore. I mean, it's just. It it takes all day just to like go out and split the wood, get the food, cook the meals. Like if you don't have an oven and a microwave mm -hmm. and whatever the like modern conveniences, like the chores of simply living through the day take all day. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. No, no, I know, I know. But it's funny. Artists, as a general whole, the one that I have a th a theory that there are three things that we want the most, mm. and you just brought up two of them, which is time, space, and money. Mm -hmm. Like if we had enough money to have enough space and enough free or available time, we would be incredibly productive and you know, making really great stuff. But those are the three things that we have the most difficulty achieving in our lives. Yeah, that's true. But I've also thought, you know, in a perfect world where you would have a, a steady income of cash, you would have a studio, you would just be in that, you know, would you not need all those side, side shooting uh, adventures as well in order for you to also create interesting work? What I tend to do is that do work on other different things. Like my Christmas job has always been working with the Forest Association of in uh, Iceland. So no Reykjavik, sorry. And that for me just like it totally bing bongs me out of the the visual art kind of world, and I'm just in the middle of the forest and I'm selling Christmas trees. And I love that. I love just, you know, really be totally in total contrast with anything else that I do. Well, and that's a discussion I've had with people for decades mm. is like, as a creative person, is it more, some people, it, it, it works better one way or another for most creative people. Mm. Some creative people love having creative jobs. Mm -hmm. And then when they come home, they're still creative. And then they, you know, just continue to make their own personal mm. works. Some people love to have, some creative people love to have jobs that have nothing to do with creativity and it's just a job. And so it sort of saves all their creative energy for when they come back to their studio and then they can sort of just like throw out all the things they had been exactly. thinking about yeah. while doing a job that Building had nothing up. to do with creative. Yeah. And, you know, people seem to fall into one of two camps. They either, you know, mm -hmm. love a creative job or mm -hmm. want a, you know, like uh, my best example is the Charles Bukowski, the author. Mm -hmm. He worked at the post office through the day and he wrote at night and on weekends. Mm -hmm. Totally mindless, stupid job mm -hmm. to make it so that he had, he had these bursts of creativity on exactly. his, his off time. Yeah, yeah. I think that actually suits me as well to just kind of get time off and then go back into the thick of it. Yeah. I mean, each to their own as well. Huh? Yeah. 
I love a good distraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, if I feel like if I'm, if I have all the time to like literally like put into the work, mm-hmm. I end up overworking it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the thing as well. If you don't have a stop place that you just keep on, keep on, and keep on going. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's a little bit what happened in COVID. I mean, during the first lockdowns, I mean, there suddenly you had all the time in the world and you just got lost in your thoughts and uh, mirroring yourself constantly and asking yourself very kind of existential questions. Well, no, I'm asking other people these mm. questions mm. through the podcast. Mm. So it's lovely. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And also the podcast, you know, it, you can work from anywhere. You know, it's a fantastic thing, actually. Maybe I it's should. been great fun. I've, 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 I, I recently did a interview where I was being interviewed mm. about this, and people they were asking me like, "So what have you learned?" And I was like, "Oh my god, I've learned so much! Like you have no idea. Mm-hmm. Like I, I could write a book on all the stuff I've learned from listening to all these different you know, experiences and lives and the different locations, but yet the commonality between them." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I love it. Yeah. All right. So I have two last questions that I ask everybody. One is, can you name me three contemporary artists that you, let's say you're looking at, you admire, you respect, or you think that the general public should be paying a little bit more attention to? I've actually been like reading uh, Lucy Irigaray, which is very much connected to she's you know trying to research and invent a new language a feminine language and then also also I've been reading Olivia Lang which I love the river book especially it's beautiful where she actually goes into Virginia Woolf and she walks down the river Thames the third one but these are not actually visual artists it's okay. I said contemporary artist. I didn't say visual artist. Oh, sorry. I just heard visual artist. Yeah. But, but the first one you mentioned, the yeah. first name, did she have a book or anything in specifics? Yeah. You just said name. Yeah. Lucy Ricari. That's the, the sex, which is not one, but also the to be born, to be born here, Lucy Ricari. John Gray as well is a great, great writer. This one here. The Soul of the Marionette. Yeah. Well, I just kind of haven't actually started that one, but he's a, you know, a kind of a writer that has kind of, you know, a train that goes into philosophy, life events, and, you know, quite poetically structured. Uh, Richard Arzwager. Okay. Could you spell that for me? Rich, I got uh, Richard. Richard Arzwager. A R T. S-C-H-W-A-G-E-R. I'm so glad you spelled that for me because I would never have no, found that. No, it's a that. crazy name, actually. I've just, you know, I just accidentally came into his presence. I think he passed away in 2013. He makes this beautiful sculpture, really minimal. He's American. Yeah. And yes, he died in 2013. 2013, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I think he's in my he's my favorite today when we're speaking, actually. I just love, I mean, because actually I'm kind of working with this drawing 2D into 3D function of an object. And just looking at his tables, I was just blown away by his box tables. Table, wannabe, it's called. Marvelous. Okay. And the last question I ask everybody is some advice that you might have for the next generation. Some, maybe some things that you had difficulty with. You could go back to your family judgmental stuff um, mm. <laughs> or, or something that you learned how to do right that maybe elude some people these days. Yeah, the thing that I've always done is listen to my other brain, which is in my stomach. I totally believe in that brain because that brain has, you know, the, led me in, in, in really good paths. It led me to my master's in Scotland. It led, me, it led me to Athens in Greece. It led me to, you know, many beautiful projects. So your gut feeling, basically, I think, and really do something that you feel good about. 
that makes you a better person. Have you ever read Malcolm Gladwell's Blink? No. Whole book is really interesting, but the introduction to the book is all about this uh, art professional that goes into a museum and he looks at a piece of art and, and he like in the absolute like tenth of a second, his first reaction is mm. that it's a fake. Oh. And it takes and it takes the professionals, the scientists, the art historians, all that. It takes them ten years of research to figure out <gasps> it's a fake. Oh my god. But it's gut reaction yeah, in that first tenth it. of a second yeah. was fake. It's exactly. like it just felt it felt fake. That and it just brain. reacted to that. Yeah. And it took it took all the other people ten years to confirm to confirm what he just, what he just felt originally. Really good book. Oh, Love Malcolm Gladwell though. Yeah. I'll note that down. All right. Well, that is it. Thank you very much for taking the time. Well, thank you for contacting me. You know, I'm actually doing this to push myself because I'm a horrible public speaker. You did lovely. <laughs> it's a, it's really good to push yourself as well. That's a, that's a good advice. Listen to your second brain and push yourself. Yeah. Get yourself out of the comfort zone. I hope you are enjoying and learning as much from these conversations as I am. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would also be greatly appreciated. Please be sure to also tell your friends to listen and subscribe as well. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles. And for more information about the podcast and our guests, please visit our website, wisefoolpod.com. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Mm-hmm.